New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Hi, everybody. Great to uh, see you. Um, uh, you'll kind of understand I'm uh, slightly stuck in kind of talking from the front mode still, having done a lot of that this morning. And I'm very aware this is a seminar. So in order to kind of help break that mold for me, I'm going to start with just a general question. and going to ask Rick just to go around and uh, we don't want essay answers. We just want quick kind of honest feedback fire kind of answers. So to get us going, here's the question. And we're not talking about the worship at New Horizon. Just think, in general, when you have a conversation with somebody in your church, say, and they say to you or you say to them, hey, the worship was really great tonight, what do you mean? What do you mean? What are you generally meaning when you say that? Just stick your hand up and thank you. Whenever you feel the presence of God. Ah, great. I like that. Thank you. Whenever you feel the presence of God. Anything else? Feel free to be as honest as you like. As long as it doesn't defame anybody's reputation. <laughs> well, as we are encouraged to be honest, um, I knew all the songs. Yeah, 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 that's good. I knew, and there, therefore I could sing them. Yeah. Honestly, I used to say that whenever it was good, it was um, good, um, lively, in tune, um, stirring. Um, now I would say it when I felt God's presence, but that was for yeah. years and years. It w it meant that it was loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great, it was loud. And half the room is has its exact opposite meaning. It's kind of when it wasn't too loud. That's when it was good. But I love the honesty. That's brilliant. Anything else? Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit too pedantic in what I would originally think. So if I'm being honest, I would want to establish and say, are you speaking about? Praise, because mm -hmm. I always think singing is praise, yeah. whereas worship is mm -hmm. everything. Uh -huh, yep. So it goes from the first introduction through the whole Absolutely. singing through to the Word of God as well. Yeah. So I'd want to make sure that it was the entire thing the all thing. together. Yes, yes. No, absolutely right. It's, it's right. Thank you. Uh, and indeed, not just in the gathering, but we're going to see it fans out to the whole of life. Um, anything else? One last one. Uh, perhaps uh, song worship, uh, you know, with enthusiasm and, and good words, be part of it. Yeah, okay. Enthusiasm and good words. Fantastic. That's great. Well, a, a moment of, another a moment of honesty for me. I think quite often, if I'm really honest, what I mean by it was I liked the music tonight. It was my kind of music. I felt very at home and very comfortable, and there was lots of energy in the room. Um, I, one way or another, quite often, I think, not when we're sort of giving the right answer, but when we're giving the kind of gutty answer, our answer to this question really boils down to how much did I like it? Now, I'm sure here in Northern Ireland, you're all better people than that. But for me, too often, it's a version of that. And so my question is, is it the same as what God would mean if he were to say, I thought the worship at New Horizon this evening was great. Well, what would God mean by that question? I want you to have John 4 open. I can give you a little bit of material now for 10, 15 minutes, and then we're going to interact, I hope, on that. John 4, the uh, familiar story of the uh, Samaritan woman by the well. So let me put the context. Uh, I always imagine it to be a sort of dry, dusty day in the Middle East. It's the middle of the day. Jesus has been walking all morning. He's tired. He's thirsty. And so he stops and he sits beside this ancient well in Samaria to the north of uh, Judea, a well that had been dug by Jacob. And then this local woman rocks up. Jesus immediately starts breaking with convention because he talks to the Samaritan woman and he asks her for a drink. And she's shocked that he should do that and speak to her. But he's even more, she's even more bemused when he starts to tell her that though he's just asked her for a drink, he's actually capable of giving water to her that is living water that will satisfy her thirst once and for all forever. And she's kind of, what? what? What on earth is going on? 
But she knows immediately, verse 15, that she wants in on whatever it is that Jesus is offering, though she's not quite sure what it is. Verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to this hot, sweaty well every day. But then it all seems to be going so well until Jesus entraps this enigmatic but kind of charming midday conversation with the most incredibly awkward question. Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. Hmm. That was a really, it was all so nice. Living water, noonday sun. I'll have a drink. I can give you a drink. Well, see, yeah, I'd like it. It's so good. And now suddenly, go get your husband. What she's going to say Well, she knows immediately that she is in the presence of a great prophet because Jesus has seen right through her. He's understood her story. Now, the Samaritan people had long been expecting God to send them a great prophet. They called him the Taheb, a prophet like Moses uh, prophesied back in Deuteronomy. And so she's sitting there thinking, this guy has just seen right through me. Could it be him? Has the Taheb, am I talking to the prophet? And this woman is, she might be on the back foot because of her awkward private life. Verse 18, the fact is you've had five husbands. The man you have is not your husband. What you just said is quite true that you have no husband. She might be a bit on the back foot, but this woman is no pushover. She wants to find out who this guy is. Verse 19, sir, the woman says, I can see you are a prophet. Boy, can she see that? But I'm going to have a conversation now. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Now, just stop there. How, how can she do that? How can, how can she think she can get someone who speaks the word of God into her life off her back that easily? He's just asked this question. She's just confessed, okay, private life, bit of a mess. And, and now she's wanting this abstract conversation about whether you go up here or down there when you want to worship God. How, how can she do that? But here is what for me is the most striking thing in the passage. Jesus doesn't say, hmm, I wasn't up for a theological conversation right now. Please can we go back to the real issue, which is your private life, which isn't in a very good place. Please can we talk about that? That's That's the conversation I want to have. He doesn't do that. Instead, he runs with it. He's willing to have a conversation with this very broken woman about worship. Why? Well, because sex actually isn't the really, really big issue. But worship is. Can't see how else you can explain Jesus' strategy in this conversation. Why is it so important? Well, of course, everyone worships. The most ardent secular atheist worships. Because everyone has something in their life to which in their hearts they attach supreme significance. It may be money, sex, power, influence, success, control, body image, all kinds of things. But whatever it is to which we attach supreme importance such that we have to have it in order to flourish as a human being, whatever that is, that thing we worship. It has power over us. We attach ultimate value to it. And that's why worship is the really big issue, why it's supremely big as an issue. Worship the wrong things and they will take over your life. Worship the only reality in the universe that is worthy of worship, the God who loves you and made made you for himself, and you will find life rather than losing it. Worship is the main issue. And that's, I think, why Jesus keeps this conversation going. Jesus then goes on to explain that worship is so important to God that he is actually looking for worshippers. He's kind of on the hunt for the real thing. Verse 23, 
A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. It's interesting, isn't it? Go back to our question right at the beginning. What do we mean when we say the worship is good? And so often we mean, I liked it. But actually what we're finding out is that God likes a certain kind of worship. He's actually on the search for the real thing, for people who will worship him as the true worshippers and then defines it as those who worship the Father in spirit and truth. And it's just worth pointing out that in the original here, there's one preposition, there's one in that governs both of these. So he's not talking about those who worship the Father in the spirit, that's the feely bit, and then in the truth, that's the kind of objective grounded bit. No, it's one thing. It's worship in spirit and truth together, word and spirit mixed. Now, what does Jesus mean by that phrase in spirit and truth? It's obviously rather important. If this is the kind of worship the Father is seeking, we need to understand what it means to worship him in spirit and truth. Well, I think there's a very long background to that phrase. You can go way back into the story of Exodus, second book of the Bible. Let me ask you a question. I wonder how many of you can remember, why did God command the Pharaoh to let the people go? Let my people go that they may worship me. That's right. And actually, if you read through that, uh, that narrative in, uh, in early Exodus, you'll find that phrase is repeated time and time again. I, I did count it once. I think it's 13 times, but however many times, it comes again and again. Let my people go that they may worship me. So God acts to save his people because the rescue from Egypt is a kind of picture of salvation. He acts to save his people in order to make them into something, in order to make them into a worshipping community. So we can actually frame the whole of the book of Exodus in these terms, that chapters 1 to 19 is the story of God rescuing his people and saving them in order that they may be a worshipping people. And then chapters 20 through to the end are God teaching them to be that worshipping community that he rescued them, he saved them to be. And actually, the second half of the book of Exodus basically falls into two halves. 19 to 24, he gives them his word, which in that context meant he spoke the law to them. And then from 25 right through to 40, it's all about the building of or the, the establishing of the tabernacle where God comes to dwell among them. In other words, he gives them his word in the law and he comes to give them his presence in the tabernacle. Exodus 25 verse 8, having have them make a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. Now, I wonder if you've just seen a connection. Jesus talks about worshipping in spirit and in truth. In spirit, the presence of God among his people. And in truth, the word of God spoken to his people. And now we seem right back at the beginning of the salvation story that it's exactly the same. God speaks his word, his law to his people and calls them to obedience. And he gives his presence to his people in the tabernacle so that they can live with him. In fact, you can take it back even further than that. You can go right back to the beginning and to Eden, which is almost like the original tabernacle or temple, which is interesting because later on when they build the temple, there are lots of Edenic pictures, pictures of creation woven into the fabric of the temple itself, as if to say this is a little taste of Eden restored again because here once again people will walk with God and dwell in his presence. So that was what they did in Eden. Adam and Eve walked with God. They lived in his presence and their lives were ordered by his word. You remember that vast scope of permission he gave them. You may eat from any tree of the garden. Here's an invitation to flourish as human beings. But they were to live 
as God's representatives, not as God. They were subject to God. His word would both give them their freedom and define the limits of that freedom. There was just the one tree from which they were not to eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they walked in his presence and they were given their freedom and the limits of their freedom by his word. In other words, they were created to be worshippers, to know God and to live for his pleasure. But then Genesis 3, they rebelled against his word and were shut out of Eden, the place of his presence, so that the worship for which they were made was then destroyed. So now back to Moses, and in the story of salvation, we're beginning to see that the worship for which we human beings were made is beginning to be restored again as we receive the word and have access to his presence in the tabernacle. But there are some things that we need to kind of think about in terms of access to his presence because it's not quite as straightforward as it seems. On the one hand, the tabernacle had to be a place of sacrifice for the price of sin to be uh, to be paid, for sin to be atoned for, in order that broken and sinful humanity could have the living God live among them. But those sacrifices, as we know from the New Testament, they they were very important, but they, they weren't the real thing. They were pointing beyond themselves. The real sacrifice, the final sacrifice, was still to come. So although God was dwelling among his people in the tabernacle, there was that great curtain which kept them away from the most holy place of his immediate presence. So they had the word of his law. They had his presence, but there was still a curtain. There was a limitation. Now, hold on to these two ideas, God giving them his word and bringing them his presence. And throw that forward to this conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, where Jesus tells us that the Father seeks worshippers who will worship in spirit and truth. You can immediately see the connection, presence and word, spirit and truth. In other words, the worship that began to form in the life of Israel in the Old Covenant, through the law and the tabernacle, is now coming to its fulfillment in Christ. But where people used to go to the tabernacle or the temple to be taught the word and to access the presence of God, now they go to Jesus, who is the word, the word incarnate, and who gives the Spirit so that we can live in his presence. He is the new temple, the new place where heaven and earth meet. And now his great sacrifice has torn the curtain so that we have full access into his presence. He is the new temple and he is the word, the incarnation of truth, speaking to us not the words of law, but the word of the gospel of grace to which the law had pointed. So it is in Christ that the Father will find the worshippers that he seeks. Let me try and draw a few conclusions and then we'll have a bit of open question and comment. In terms of the worshippers the Father seeks, the worshippers the Father seeks go to Jesus in order to worship. True worship, the worship the Father seeks is Christ-centered, responding to the word of his gospel and celebrating its truth, responding with the obedience of faith. And we go to Christ to receive the Spirit he gives. John 1.32, the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit come down and remain. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, who brings us into the age of the Spirit as new covenant Christians. We go to Jesus to worship. Our worship must be Christ-centered. But the worshippers that the fathers seek also find, if you like, the fuel for their worship in the truth that Jesus speaks. Worship that the Father seeks is grounded in truth. It isn't just, how do I get the best feeling I can this evening? That, that falls short. I don't for a minute mean that our feelings in worship are unimportant. I don't mean that for a moment. But it isn't just a kind of desperate search for another feeling. No, it is grounded in something unchanged and objective and glorious. It's grounded in the truth of the gospel. One of the frameworks I find most helpful to think about worship is to see it as a response to revelation. Response to revelation. God speaks, we respond. 
God reveals himself. We adore him for the God that he has shown himself to be. But authentic worship is fueled by the truth that Jesus speaks. But authentic worship is, if you like, set on fire by the Spirit he gives. In other words, worship is experiential and alive. We all know, don't we, that you can say the words or you can sing the words and it just be sounds that you're making. It's not authentic. It's not arising from anything deep within your soul. It's not on fire. It's just going through a familiar routine. That isn't the worship that the Father seeks. The worship the Father seeks is set on fire by the Spirit he gives. We are meant to feel as well as to understand the love and the truth of God. And the Holy Spirit lives within us so that he brings that truth alive to us and births in us the kind of response to that truth that will give God the honor of our hearts and lives. But then, fourthly, we mustn't assume, and this goes back to the comment that was made very helpfully just at the beginning, we mustn't assume that worship is just singing. Nor must we assume even that worship is just about our meetings as a whole. No, as we saw in the Bible reading yesterday morning, worship is about responding to God's majesty and grace in the whole of life. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, um, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship, he says, and then goes on to the transformation of the mind that we've been talking about. Now, if you have different versions of the Bible, you'll actually see there are almost as many translations of that phrase spiritual worship as there are translations of the Bible. The translators don't know quite what to do with it. In Greek, it's the phrase logike latreia. And you can hear in that phrase logike, the connection to logic, yeah? Your reasonable worship, some have translated it. And then Latreia is, uh, is, is often used of the, the worship of God in the service of the temple. It's serving God in, in that kind of um, gathered worship sense. But, but in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's actually found out into the whole of life. It's to do with how we, how we live in all of life, as we offer our bodies, as we were seeing yesterday morning, to be for the pleasure and praise of God. And I like the little story by, uh, by Gordon Fee. Some of you may be familiar with Gordon Fee, a Pentecostal scholar uh, in Canada. And uh, he was working on um, a commentary on Romans. And uh, he was really stumbling on this phrase, logike latreia. And um, he, he was kind of not sure what to say. And so he... Uh, like all of us preachers, when we're not sure what to say, the answer is, go have a coffee. So he went have a coffee and uh, chatted his wife and said, I just don't know what to do with Logike Latreia. And she said, well, Gordon, just tell me what you're trying to say. And he said, well, it's kind of like, it's like the worship that makes sense. That's what it is. And so she said, well, why don't you just say that then? It's the worship that makes sense. And so that's what he translated. And when you think about it, what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is doing, it's reflecting on the mercy of God. That's the kind of the fuel, the truth that's going to fire the worship that he's speaking about. Romans 1 to 11 have expounded the mercy of God, centered on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to release us from the debt of our sin. So what would be the worship that makes sense in response to the revelation of God giving himself and his son to be the sacrifice for our sins? Well, the worship that would make sense to that would be that we would offer our bodies to be a living sacrifice for his praise and glory. It makes sense. And that worship, of course, embraces every sphere of our human existence. Now, I'm not going to say more about that today because I said more about it yesterday, but it's hugely important. Uh, we mustn't, do you know, sometimes, sometimes I get a bit irritated when uh, folk talk about this because often it feels to me like people are saying, we don't really like all the fluffy stuff that goes on in church where we, you know, feel stuff and our emotions are stirred. No. Please, let's keep this very real and tangible. This is good old-fashioned obedience in everyday life, you know? That's what we're talking about in worship. I, I want to turn that on its head. 
I still believe profoundly in the importance of the gathered worship of the people of God. Think about these gifts of word and spirit. And think about the unique way in which God presents his word and makes himself present among his people when we gather. That's why Bible preaching is so important in the gathered church. God is presenting his word to us and calling us to the obedience of faith as we respond to that word in worship. But we also know that in the community of God's people, God is uniquely present. He's present to bless. He's present to act. He's present giving his spirit. So there's a unique sense in which we worship in spirit and truth in the gathered community. And I don't want to talk that down for a minute, but sometimes, you know, I get people who say to me things like, well, you know, to be honest, I just wish I could spend all my life worshiping, by which they really mean playing their guitar 24-7. I love guitar. Don't get me wrong. And I want to say to them, do you know, no, that God, there's a bigger picture of worship. You can enjoy worshiping God in everything that you're doing. You Don't spend Monday to Saturday just wishing you were in church and thinking that that's God, where God wishes you were. Because no, he put you there to worship in the university, in the, uh, the, the, the company, in, in your home. In, he put you there to worship 24-7. You can worship him when you're doing the most mundane things ever because you can do it for his pleasure and his glory. And that's actually very liberating when we see worship as a whole life response to God. So there we are. I'm going to stop going on now, but I hope that helps you a little bit. And I hope what it helps you do is reframe the question a little bit. So often our honest approach to worship is very consumerist. Do we like it? Is it too loud? Is it too quiet? Is it too upbeat? Is it too reflective? Is there too much music? Is there too little music? Is the sermon too long? Is the sermon too short? What is the worship I like and why can't I find it anywhere? Let's reframe the question. What is the worship the Father seeks? And this journey through scripture that we've just taken in a few moments, I hope begins to help us answer that question. So in a moment, I'm going to give a few moments for, uh, for questions in case there are any. But just while you're thinking whether you've got a question to answer, I'm going to take the liberty of a bit of shameless publicity, uh, which is um, this book that uh, Donna mentioned on, uh, when was it, Sunday night, um, is my attempt to really answer this question in a bit more detail. What is the worship the Father is seeking? It's called The Message of Worship in the IVP Bible Speaks Today series. And what it does is just to go through, it's about 20 chapters, it takes key uh, passages from Old and New Testament, expounds them into a kind of journey through Scripture to help us learn what is the kind of worship that the Father is seeking. And then um, at the end, it's, it's Trinitarian in structure. So it's first of all the worship the Father seeks, and then the worship the Son makes possible, and then the third section, the worship that the Spirit uh, enlivens or, or uh, brings to life. That's the kind of basic map of the book. But at the end of each section, I expound a couple of psalms. We'll come back to this at the end of the morning. Trying to learn the variety of voices of worship that are present within Scripture itself, because I think we often only have one or two voices of worship. And Scripture gives us lots more, which is very enriching to discover. So if you're interested in going further with any of the stuff that we're talking about today, um, you might want to buy this. It's on the bookstall, $12.99. Um, I might even put my name in the front of it if you ask me very nicely. So um, before we go a little bit more practical, most of the rest of the session I'm not going to be talking, by the way. Um, so before we go a bit more practical, any questions or comments about the journey so far just stick your hand up if you've got one and i'll ask rick to come to you and i'll have a sip of coffee while i'm waiting what about silence what about silence thank you that's very very helpful um what I'd want to say on that is that it's a brilliant point. The, this whole thing of the voices of worship that I want to come back to a little bit in the Psalms um, incorporate, well, I say voice, but actually they incorporate silence as well. Psalm 46, of course, be still and know that I am God. Um, just in my own story, for what it's worth, 
When I start my devotions each day, I've, I've learned to start not with me talking, but with silence. I go through this simple routine where I just think of the Father and then silently reflect on the Father's love. Then I conclude that by saying, Father, I receive your love. And then I think of the grace of Christ and what he's done for me on the cross, silently. Jesus, I receive your grace as I turn from my sin. And I think of the Spirit, just reflect silently on all that he is and has done and say, Spirit, I seek your fullness and receive you today. And that's been so life-giving for me just to build silence in. But there's definitely a place for that in our corporate worship as well. Thank you. Thank you. Anything else before we move on? It's just one over there. Thank you. So focusing mostly on, on praise rather than worship, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the honest answers would come from personal preference. Mm -hmm. So where, where does that fit in? Like, for example, in this room, obviously, there'll be a lot of different, yeah. and that'll come from churches we've been brought up in, music we listen to week to week, etc. Yeah. But within that, there will be ways that I can worship mm -hmm. in my preference that God seeks, yeah. but somebody else's preference can also be in a way that honors God. So practically within a church, with a mix of preferences, should we be setting aside them preferences? Should we be praying for different preferences, for unity and preferences? Or how does that mix in with what God would want to look down in a, in a mix of old and young, different people in a community of church to, to worship him, but still, like, do we deny our preferences or do we pray for them to be changed, that sort of idea? I love that question. That's where the rubber hits the, hits the road, isn't it? In, in many of the kind of the worship wars, as they used to be called. Um, and I haven't got an easy answer to it. But just the very fact you asked the question is, in a way, the key thing. What I'd want to say is that we need a missional vision of worship. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. And then in Psalm 96... The nations are invited to sing the song of salvation. And it's interesting that they're invited to sing the new song. And Chris Wright, um, who's a missiologist, whose work I've uh, benefited from a great deal, he talks about singing the new song in terms of cultural diversity and how actually when we invite people from a different culture to our own to sing the new song, we invite them to sing it within their cultural parameters and actually the kind of the melody line starts to become a harmony and the whole thing begins to build to a symphony in that variety of cultures joined together in worshipping the Lord. Now, as an image, I love that and it's beautiful and I kind of want to hang on to that, however hard it is to work it out in the life of the local church. But I think what I want to say uh, to all of us and I say to myself is... It's so crucial, so, so crucial that our vision for our local churches becomes deeply missional. If our vision for the local church is, how can I have church which suits me? To be honest, we've lost the plot. It's not what the people of God are there for. We are called to, to, to bring the good news of God to to the nations. We've been thinking a lot about this in Ephesians recently and, and how... The unity and diversity of the church is meant to be a, a kind of prophetic anticipation of the reconciliation of all things in Christ, which the gospel brings. In other words, people are meant to be able to look into the church and see how can such diversity exist in unity in that community? How can that happen? That, that can only happen if there is a God in heaven who is seeking to unite all things in Christ, it should the the unity and diversity of the church should be a working miracle in every community, in our nations. That's that's the vision of the church in Ephesians one. How does that happen? Well, one way it doesn't happen. Let's just stay on the music thing for a moment because just that's often where the sensitivity is. One way it doesn't happen is for me to say, do you know, that's my music, that's what I like, and that's God's music. And that's what he likes. That's your music. That's what you like. That's the devil's music. God doesn't like it. 
That is not any way of bringing diversity and unity among the people of God. Rather, I'd love to be in a church. I've never been in such a church quite yet, but I'd love to be in a church where people are meeting. Let's stick on the music thing again for a minute. People meet someone, maybe within the church or maybe outside, whose musical tastes are so different to theirs that they hardly know how to even have a conversation with them. And they say to them, do you know, we are so different. But I would love to find a way in which you could find a home among the people of God. Can we talk about how that might be the case? And then actually think, well, how, how could we flex to enable that person to sing within their own voice in our gathering? And what I'd love even more if after a year or two, that person then came back and had the conversation with me and said, so you said you like some different stuff. Tell me about, tell me about yours. Oh, how could I learn to sing in that voice too? And that doesn't answer any of the programmatic things, but I think in terms of heart, it's so important because scripture does recognize cultural identity and can value cultural identity. You think of Revelation 21 and 2 and the glories of the nations in all their diversity gathered into the new Jerusalem. God is not against cultural diversity. He doesn't dismiss cultural identity. So we do actually all need to sing within our own voice, within our own heart language. But actually, Scripture also sets us free and calls us to relate beyond our cultural identity, beyond our national identity, beyond our preferences. Because actually that isn't who you are anymore. Who you are is who you are in Christ. And that transcends cultural and national identity. So you can still be yourself while singing in the heart language of somebody else, even though you find that a difficult language to learn. But it's a wonderfully missional thing when you learn to do it. A few years ago, actually a lot of years ago, Alison and I were in... Um, what's now called uh, DR Congo up in the northeast and we went to a church one Sunday morning and um, the music what's time okay just time for this one story then I'll shut up um, the, it was it was kind of lovely uh, the music was led by a brass band of beaten up presumably ex-English or I don't know where instruments that have been transported out there and all the songs they sung were translations into Swahili of the songs that I sung in my youth as a kid in Western church. You know, I mean, they were lovely people, but it was some of the most deathly worship I'd ever experienced. And I was so disappointed. I was looking forward to being in Africa, and I was going to feel the kind of rhythm of Africa in the worship of the people of God. This was going to be so enlivening. Oh, great. And it was dull and, and deathly. And then, one day, they let a local band of musicians come in. They put aside the brass band, and they were playing their own instruments. I don't even know what they were. And they were singing their own songs that they'd written within their own cultural parameters. And the whole place was on fire. It was absolutely wonderful. And that was a profound lesson to me, that actually, if, I, if my goal is to make everybody want to like the worship I like... I've really lost the plot. What God wants is for people from many cultures to join in the new song and make the new song new every time another culture joins in and turn the melody into a symphony. hope that helps a little bit, but it, means it needs a lot of grace um, in the local church. Okay, I'd like you to do a little bit of thinking now where you are. That means talking to the people around you. I hope that's acceptable. Seems like a very friendly place, Northern Ireland. Um, we all talk to each other easily. So whoever's around you, I'd like you just to... I've put the headlines of our kind of journey there up on the screen. And I'd just like you to reflect on how those kind of principles from the Bible story about worship might impact and enrich our experience of, of gathered worship. Okay? Just buzz on that with the people around you for two or three minutes then we'll take a microphone rounds and uh, collect up your wisdom for people who listen in other ways and then I'll just come to the end with a few other thoughts so please talk yeah um, I think so is all right, yeah. I think the interaction's good actually, just because yeah. um, 
People have been listening passively yeah, for a long time, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brings out the actual questions, doesn't it? So, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Sorry to keep you so busy on your on your feet with that, but um, yeah. Okay. Maybe you can uh, draw that to a close now. Thank you. I love, I love how the Irish like to talk. It's great. Do you know when um, when you do seminars in uh, in England and we're being our most stuffy English, you kind of say you can talk now, and especially if it's in kind of church context, you have to persuade them to get talking. But I loved it then. I just said talk, and psh, suddenly this explosion of good Irish crack. That's great. Thank you. So, um, if you heard something from somebody else that was interesting in that conversation. I'd love you just to put your hand up and we'll hear it, okay? So, something you heard from somebody else that you'd like to share with the group. Here's one at the, uh, the front here. Thank you. Other way, sorry. <laughs> the man next to me yeah. said, he fits in wherever he goes, he appreciates the worship. That's very good, very, I love that heart. Thank you so much, thank you. Anybody else here, anything? Yeah, one at the back, thank you. Making me work hard here. Um, so the lady next to me talked about how um, the, the whole life and being able to see the whole life of uh, as part of the worship because, you know, we, we spend so much time outside of the, the context of church and that stuff. So, you know, being able to see that and, um, and, and check yourself whenever things happen to, you know, see it as God's hand and to and to the, then the other thing we discussed is just the the third one down the worship is ignited by the spirit and we discussed how you know it's not always like that for us in our quiet times they're not always you know fire driven ignited by the holy spirit everything's on fire so we we also discussed the you know what what is for us as believers in this room, what's our part to play as believers to enable the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. to ignite us? So, yeah, just a couple of thoughts. It's really helpful. Can I just come in on a couple of reflections? That great questions and great comments. Um, I sometimes, you know, that thing that Jonathan's talked about a time or two of us of singing to one another with Hans, psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. And I think sometimes that's some of the dynamic that helps us recover a sense of the Spirit's presence. It's interesting that it comes in Ephesians 5 on the back of the command to be filled with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, singing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord. So I think sometimes the Lord uses congregational worship as a means of grace that we might experience his spirit more. So that the struggle in our daily lives, uh, we get some help when we're listening to our brother or sister uh, singing, their, singing their hearts out. Um, I think what, just to pick up what you said about the whole life thing, really helpful. And just a word to any pastors here. You know, I've been a pastor for a long time. Our world becomes very dominated by church when you're a pastor because you live and breathe it pretty much 24-7. Watch your sermons, and I'm speaking to myself, because actually you, what we find, our default will be for all of our sermon applications to be churchy, about ministry and about our lives, when actually what's helpful is for congregational worship to prepare people to serve in in their lives. Um, if you want to think hard about that, um, LICC, London Institute for Christianity, they've got lots of stuff on whole life worship on their website. Go have a look there. They have this thing called This Time Tomorrow, TTT, um, where they'll encourage you in a service just to stop and have two or three people say, TTT, what will you be doing this time tomorrow on Monday at 11 o'clock? And then you just hear from different bits of the congregation. And that's so helpful. Um, I particularly like it when I hear somebody in business, saying, this time tomorrow I'm going to be trying to do a deal to help my business flourish. Because we Christians are a bit funny about business sometimes, aren't we? But actually, creating wealth is a gift of God. It's a sign of his blessing. It's a good, it's a good thing. And we need to be able to give voice to those things that sometimes we're a bit sniffy about in the church. 
within the context of our worship. Thank you so much. Any other comments or questions from what you heard? Time probably for one more. Yes, thank you. Just, just wait for the mic if that's okay. I think it was someone else in my group who said something I completely agree with in terms of when we use the title worship leader, what does that mean? It's to lead the worship. It's not a performance. Yeah. And it was bringing that corporate element in it yeah. together, you know, church being gathering together, yes. that we actually are, the whole purpose is for the people to join in mm. yes. to bring our praises as one together. Mm. Mm. And so, again, it's away from the self-focused mm. to the congregational focus, mm. but also in a way that is, is God-focused primarily and the role of prayer mm. and the sensitivity to what God wants to say to, to be sensitive to his leading, not in a way that's erratic or all over the place, but one where it could be a sensitivity of to be still. Yes. It could be a sensitivity of what God has to say. Mm. And we've seen it in practice where mm. even with no collaboration, mm. when God has something to say, it does sometimes come through in yeah. many different forms. Yeah. That's so helpful. Thank you ever so much. Some people prefer to talk about a lead worshipper than a worship leader. I don't know if that helps or not. I don't think we've quite found the best language for it yet, to be honest, so thank you. Okay, let me just run through two or three quick things um, that were kind of uh, reflections of mine uh, in the light of this. Um, one thing is beware of God in general and spirituality in general type of worship. The real thing is passionately Christ-centered. And sometimes I kind of find myself in the middle of a song just pinching myself, or a set of songs. We tend to run a few together in our context. And I kind of think, Hank, we've talked a lot about God here. We've maybe even welcomed the Holy Spirit to be at work among us. But is, have we even mentioned Jesus? Have we even mentioned the cross, the resurrection? No, we, we are Christians. <laughs> and, and we need our worship to remain Christ-focused. And that's scandalous because... Most of our society doesn't have too much of a problem with God in general or spirituality in general, but the particularity of Christ and what he's done, that's where the scandal is, and that's where we need to, what we need to keep hold of in our worship. To keep the fire of worship burning, you need to keep up the fuel supply. Really, really important. Remember, it's actually the truth of the gospel that is the fuel of our worship. We need to keep up the fuel supply. Otherwise, it just gradually drifts off into the search for another experience. I'm not at all against experience, but it needs to be fueled by the truth of the gospel. So keep plenty of Bible in it, whether that's in your call to worship or whether it's in the content of the songs or sometimes whether it's in the prayers that maybe link a couple of songs together. Try and make sure that it's scripture that's setting the agenda. If we think the worship is response to revelation, take away the revelation and all you've got the response. And to be honest, that's not all that interesting, is it? You know, just singing about yourself. And I'm not, I'm not interesting enough to sing about for half an hour. Yeah, we need to make sure that we are fueling our worship with plenty of scripture. Can I just say that doesn't mean that every song has to be a theological treatise because the response to Revelation is really important as well. So I, I think that some of the Psalms are remarkably simple and even quite repetitive. And actually, it's fine to... To, to, to kind of throw into the, the, the room a wonderful, rich, biblical concept to which we then respond in a really very simple song of praise and adoration. It doesn't mean everything has to be heavy, but it does mean that we want to make sure that the fuel of worship is the truth of God as revealed in Scripture. Expect the Holy Spirit to be active. This is picking up your point. Don't have everything so tied up that there's no room for him to surprise us or no space for us to express the responses that he births in us in the moment. Expect him to be active. Burst the bubble by making real life connections. It's just so great. It's the back to the whole life thing. It's so great to think of ways of making those connections, not just in the preaching, but sometimes in the prayers or in the, the comments that might lead in to our worship. Make the connections with the rest of life. Just a comment about music and its power. Hope you realize how powerful music is. It's very, very powerful. It's, it enables, you can say words and sing words 
the same words and the experience can be very, very different. Because somehow worship is a gift of God in creation that connects with our souls. It kind of it kind of drills down deeper into our humanity than just the spoken word. Music is very, very powerful. And sometimes that makes us kind of fearful of music. You know, we're fearful of music that, that stirs our emotions. I think that's an important fear, but sometimes a misplaced fear. What we have to make sure is that the music is stirring our emotions appropriately because actually our emotions are meant to be involved in our worship. So for me, singing wonderful, wonderful truths about the majesty of God and the richness of grace and the beauty of holiness to a completely deadpan song, that's manipulative because that's not the right emotional cadence for that kind of response. Just as singing incredibly upbeat music to something that actually should be leading me to fall to my knees in reverence and silence. That's manipulative as well. Do you see what I mean? So, so don't deny the power of music, but use it appropriately for the words that we are worshipping in. And then the final thing is to broaden our thinking around the range of responses to God that Scripture encourages. Um, I've run out of time, so I'm just going to put this on the screen. If you want to go further with this, um, buy the book. Sorry, that, that's shameless, isn't it? But those are actually the chapter headings or a number of the books. But all I want to say is in the Psalms, there are many more voices of worship than just the Hallelujah Psalms. They're great. I love the celebration Psalms. But there are Psalms of, of adoration. There are Psalms of repentance. There are Psalms of proclamation. There are Psalms of lament. There are psalms of desire and we need to learn to relate to God in all of those voices and whichever of those feels the most familiar to you, well take a moment to give thanks to God for it now and whichever feels the most alien to you, well make a particular focus on reading that psalm and learning to worship God within that voice because actually the worship that honours God is not just one narrow thing. It's rich and it embraces the whole of our humanity. Thank you so much for listening and for engaging and for your comments and questions. Over to Rick just to bring us to a close. Thank yeah, you. I have nothing to say other than thanks to John. Maybe we could thank him for what he's brought today. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk. 